Thank you. Pardon me. Good morning, everyone. Excuse me. Good to see you all. Glad you're here today. This morning, before I begin my message, um, just a couple things I wanted to mention. Some of you may have seen in the current that we have, you may have heard this term, crosstalk. Every other month, back in the Woodside Room, we are going to be offering um, just a, a, a discussion on a relevant topic. So next Sunday, if you, you notice on the back of the current, we're going to have a discussion on technology and spirituality. Dr. Keith Plummer, who's one of our own, is um, kind of leading the way in terms of he teaches a course on this. He's been doing a lot of thinking and reflecting. And so if you are available next Sunday at 11 o'clock, that'll be offered in the back room. At this time, I'm going to ask our, some of our folks to come. And if you need an extra Bible, if you'll turn, or not turn, if you'll raise your hand, we'll be glad to give you an extra Bible. And I'll kind of fill you in on where we are. As John was talking about the, the Riverstone Institute, I think if you haven't picked this up by now, we're really committed to the idea that God's people need to learn God's Word and pray that there will be a great revival in American culture where people will begin again to read their Bibles and that there will be a great hunger and thirst for the truth. And those of you that are attending a church that doesn't teach the Bible, get out. You don't need to come here, but go somewhere where you're learning God's Word. So, this morning, if you're here for the first time, we're going through a series called Rooted in the Faith on the major doctrines of the Christian faith. What does the Bible teach about God, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about sin, about salvation, about creation? But this morning, we're going to begin a new section, which is sometimes referred to as the doctrine of the application of redemption. And you're like, well, I was hoping that you were going to tell us a Christmas sermon. I am. I am. The Bible says, this is a trustworthy statement. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's Christmas. Christ Jesus came to save sinners. But the reason that we call this the application of redemption is because if you think about it, when we studied the person and work of Jesus, we learned that Jesus is God. We learned how he took on humanity. And then we learn what he did on the cross for us when he bore our sins in his body and he shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. The Lamb of God redeemed us. But really, left to the cross, if what he did on the cross doesn't become applied to yours or my life, it's meaningless. It's just a hill far away. So the application of redemption is beginning to understand how is it that I was able to become a Christian, how I was able to get what Christ did to count for me. And it's kind of like Christmas, and here's why. The Bible says, we have received the Spirit who is from God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us by God. And so as we study the doctrine of the application of redemption, what we're talking about here is a study of salvation. First of all, what is salvation? A lot of people are very confused about this. I had a guy one time say to me, oh yeah, I'm saved. I was in a car accident and God saved me. That's not the salvation that the Bible talks about. And then, what is it that happened in order for me to become saved? When did this all begin? What are the orderly events that went into my salvation? And it's kind of like being born. Eventually, somebody explained to you how you were born and they didn't go, 
First you were born, then you were conceived. There was an orderly series of events. So based on the Word of God, we can then look at Scripture and begin to, to say, okay, I need to learn this. For example, if you're a parent, the Bible tells us pay close attention to your, to your life and to your beliefs, your doctrine, because then you will ensure salvation not only for yourself, but for those who hear you. So a couple things are going to happen as we go through this. You're going to check out your own salvation, okay? And then secondly, you're going to become more informed as to what God has done so that we can respond in worship and praise. And we're also then going to learn how to communicate this message of salvation to other people. So we're going to start with a definition of salvation. But before we do that, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather in the name of Jesus, we've worshiped, we've given, and now we pray and we thank you so much that we can meet and learn the word of God. We pray that you will open our eyes and stir up our hearts. We pray for the church all over the world that the gospel will spread, that you'll help those who are persecuted and suffering. And we pray for the church in America that there would be a great revival from the lukewarm and godless condition of the church to a passionate, holy, Christ-centered people who live for Jesus and make a difference in this fallen world. Thank you for our time together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's start with a definition of salvation. What exactly does it mean to become saved? Before, before we kind of work through the definition, here's a great verse about salvation. The author of Hebrews had was writing to a group of people who had claimed to be saved. Oh, yeah, I got saved. And a lot of them were now no longer going to church, not studying the Bible, and were just kind of drifting from it. So he says, we must pay much closer attention to what we heard, to the Bible, so that we don't drift away from it. There's a whole lot of ships of souls, and don't let it be yours, that has drifted away from the church and is floating out in the sea of who knows what. Pay attention to the Word of God. Because, Paul said, or the author said, if every sin or transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, what's going to happen to us? How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? That's one of the ways that the Bible describes Christianity. A great salvation. And it is not something that you ought to just think about once in a while. It should be central in the heart and mind of a Christian. And there's a real possibility that any of us can become lukewarm, can become disinterested, can become distracted, and flat out fall away from the things that the Bible teaches about salvation. But when you think about salvation, God's got a lot for us to learn about. So look at the definition I have here for you. Everything God does to rescue sinners from hell so we learned a while back in our study, and you could go back and listen to the, the messages if you didn't, when we look, looked at original sin, that we're sinners. We deserve hell. There's nothing we can do about it left to ourselves. So when we say everything God does, that goes back in time. The first thing God did to save you was to plan for your salvation and choose you, even before the world began. But then, 2,000 years ago, he sent his son. But then in your life, it's everything that he does to bring us into a community to call us to eternal salvation whereby then we become 
part of his family and the body of Christ. And then ultimately it goes well into eternity in the new heavens and the new earth when we live in glory with God. And so it's a, a vast subject. It's not something that we're like, oh, now I know all about it. But it begins with a very interesting doctrine called the doctrine of election. And we're going to talk about that. But before we talk about that, I want you to understand that the idea of knowing about your salvation is important. Because then you can go back and look at your spiritual biography and sort of try to figure out, mm, so this must be why that happened. And now that explains why these things happen. So the concept of putting these events in an order is not something that somebody made up. Like, I got an idea. Let's make up a fancy Latin word, ordo salutis. Let's keep the masses in ignorance. But the order in which the Holy Spirit applies the work of salvation to our hearts is taught in the Bible that God doesn't just helter-skelter go, I don't know, let me just save everybody. No, it's very, it's very well planned out on God's part. So in Romans chapter 8, 28, you, many of you know this verse. When bad things have happened to you, you've, you've said, God causes all things to work together for good. Can somebody give me, if you wouldn't mind, I apologize, I don't want to be some needy. Thanks, Sean. I, I'm sorry, I have a cold. Can you just put some cold water in that? Thank you. Um, so it says, those whom God foreknew, so there's some, some in eternity past he foreknew. He also predestined. People go, oh, I don't believe in predestination. I go, excuse me? It says you're predestined, right? What do you mean you don't believe in predestination? To become conformed to the image of his son. So God had this plan that he would take sinners and that some of them would become conformed to the image of Christ, that Christ would be the firstborn among many brethren. But he didn't just stop with foreknowing them and predestining them. Those whom he predestined, he called. So, wait a minute, what does that mean? He called? And something happened to those whom he called. He doesn't call everybody. Because look what it says. These whom he called, he also justified. Okay? So if God calls you, you are going to be justified or have already been justified. If you're like, what does that mean? Pastor John preached a marvelous sermon at the end of October on Reformation Sunday. The entire sermon was on justification. I would highly encourage you to listen to that if you haven't already. Sorry about that. I feel like some prima donna. Hey, give me my... Thank you. Don't shake my hand today to your own chagrin. Um, now, then he says, these whom he justified, he also glorified. So when people say to me, Hey, do you think you can lose your salvation, Pastor? I go, no. Because if someone's been justified, those whom he truly justified are already glorified. And that's in the future. God speaks as though it's already done. So, this idea of an order of events is in the Bible. What Paul doesn't do here is give all of them. For example, there's other terms like sanctification, perseverance. And so, if we were to look at a broader study of these, there's actually... 10 events in the order of salvation. Now, the, I highlighted the first one because that's where we'll begin and we'll get through up to justification today. But the idea is that God elects people, okay? Before eternity, the Bible says he chooses people. But then at some point in their life, he gives them a gospel call. And, and then he works in their heart through the mystery of regeneration, which causes them to, to come to Christ and be converted, and then when they're converted, he justifies and adopts them. 
But that begins a process in which we're now being sanctified. We're growing into the image of Christ. That's why we're studying how people change. And as true believers, God works in our heart and causes us to persevere. So people who bail, they go, ah, I don't believe that junk anymore. We learn from the order of salvation that all believers persevere. If you bail, you didn't lose your salvation. You weren't saved. And then ultimately, if Christ doesn't come back, we die and, and our souls go to be with Christ until the return of Christ when we're resurrected in a new body and we're glorified. This is a big study. But let's move to begin with election. So again, I, I, it's disturbing when people say to me, I don't believe in election. I go, I think I know what you mean, but please don't say that anymore unless you want to add it. I don't believe in the Bible because you can't say you're not elect. You can't say you're not predestined. The Bible says you are. The question is, what does that mean? But it's actually not something to go, this is crazy. It's something to celebrate. Look what it says. We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, dearly loved by God. That's what it means to be beloved. You're dearly loved by God. Why should I thank God? Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Now, if you're not a Christian, this isn't you, right? But if you're a Christian, God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Wow, that's pretty profound. So God actually picked me. He selected me. There's 7 billion people right now on this planet, let alone all the ones past. And I'm one of those people whom God saved. Oh, thank you, Lord. I ought to praise you. So the real question here is not whether you're elect. It's why are you elect? Why did God choose you? Why did he choose me? Some of you have been taught that he simply chose you because he knew ahead of time that you were going to choose him. So he basically just looked out in time and he said, look at all those people down there. I wonder which ones will pick me. Hey, look, Tom's going to pick me. And because Tom's going to pick me, then I'm going to pick him. So the real issue that we're trying to answer is, why does God choose us? That first view that I just explained is called foreknowledge election. And the idea is that it's, it's a very passive act on God's part. He simply just looks ahead in time and he goes, I can see that you're going to pick me. And as a result of that, I choose you. Okay? And when I first became a Christian, logically that made sense. I was like, yeah, I guess he picked me because I knew he was going to pick him. But the more I read the scriptures, I started to wonder, well, wait a minute. Did he really choose me because I, I would believe in him? Or did he choose me and that's why I believe in him? And you're like, now some people, let me just tell you if you're not tracking with me. If you go, well, they're basically the same thing, okay? These are not basically the same thing. They, they couldn't be further apart, okay? Either God just looks down and he chooses people who will turn to him, or he looks down on a bunch of godless pagans who would never turn to him unless he chooses them. And that's why it's sometimes called sovereign, it's his choice, grace, unconditional election. Now immediately some of you are going, are you, are you, gonna, are you one of them there? I've heard about people like you, a Calvinist. And I go, well, first of all, I'd rather not be called a Calvinist, okay? Because if Calvin made something up, then I'm not interested. 
But if Calvin simply taught what the Bible teaches, then I prefer you call us a Biblicist or a Paulist. So it's not about whether Calvin taught it. It's a really an issue of what does the Bible teach? Now, I will tell you that I believe in sovereign grace election. And I realize that there's a mystery and there's a lot of questions, okay? But I want you to start with this. This whole premise that God just leaves us completely to ourselves, and that we can just choose whether or not we want to follow him and then he chooses us. The place where we have to think deeply is what does the Bible teach about the human will left to themselves? This is what convinced Martin Luther in Sovereign Grace Election. He wrote a book called The Bondage of the Human Will. When Adam and Eve sinned and began to have children, what, was it, what does the Bible teach about the souls and, and the hearts and the will of humans? Left to themselves, would anyone choose God? So let's look at some passages that explain why some people believe in sovereign grace election. If you don't agree with me, it's not the end of the world. I don't want you to agree with me because I said it. And here in the evangelical free church tradition, we allow for both positions. But I want you to understand why I believe that God saves us based on his sovereign election, not simply because he knew I would choose him. Look what the Bible says about unbelievers. And I'm just going to give you a series of passages. The first one says that before we were believers, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, whatever that means, it's somehow we're spiritually disconnected from God, okay, and deserving of his wrath. So I was dead, okay? Now, that in itself would go, so spiritually dead people are just going to choose God, but, but it, that's just the beginning. The Bible also says this about unbelievers. Sometimes you'll go home and you'll tell your family, look, it says right here you have to be saved by grace through faith. It's not by works. It's salvation. And they're, and they're going, no, I don't agree with that. And you go, but it says it right here in the Bible. How come they can't understand it? Here's why. The Bible says with unbelievers, the God of this world, that's Satan, he has blinded the minds. Not just their eyes. They don't go, I can't see the Bible. He's blinded their minds so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. They can't see it. Satan has held them blind. And you're like, well, I see it. Exactly. Now the question is, why do you see it? Was it because one day you just were smarter than the average bear? Or what does Paul say? For God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown into our hearts to give the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Does that sound like God did that after you chose him? So you go, okay, unbelievers are blind unless God shines the gospel in their heart. How about Romans 8? Paul, as he describes the disposition of an unbeliever, this is not just bad people. This is all people, people who are in the flesh. The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. Now, that doesn't mean people hate God. It just means that they're not going to bow to God and allow God to be the, the controller of their lives. It doesn't subject itself to the law of God. Now, notice, it's not even able to do so. So children, men and women, boys and girls, religious, irreligious, all over this world, have a disposition that's in opposition to God. They're not going to obey God. They're not going to turn to God. 
The Bible says that. And then perhaps another one that's, it's, a, it's kind of a beautiful imagery. So you're, you're, you're concerned. You're like, why won't my kids come to Christ? I'm, I, it breaks my heart. I tell them Jesus is the only way. And they're like, they're not interested. And parents will come and say, the reason my 20-year-old doesn't come to church is because you don't have a youth group anymore. And I go, no, that's not, they don't, not why your 20-year-old doesn't come to church. It's because they don't want to be here. But part of the reason is, is because many times people are in opposition to the Bible. And so they're going to say things. Well, I, who do you think you are saying Jesus is the only way? Why are you judging? I'm like, don't shoot the messenger. And it's not our job to be fighting with people. But if they, if they believe things different from the Bible, the Bible says with gentleness, we should correct those who are in opposition. So I don't go, that's the stupidest idea I ever heard. But with gentleness, I go, hey, I understand why you might believe in this, or you were told this, but can I show you what the Bible says? But as you correct them, your hope is perhaps God may grant them repentance. Something happens, and they come to their senses. That's the prodigal son. Some of you have a prodigal son in your life right now. Pray that God will work in his heart, and that he will come to his senses. Does that sound like God going, I know that that person who's held captive by Satan is going to choose me, so I'll choose them. It says God grants them repentance. They come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil. So I realize that that's very confusing because you're going, wait a minute. So, Pastor, if you're telling me that unsaved people are incapable of turning to God and will not turn to God, then doesn't that mean that it's not their fault and that they don't have a free will? And the answer is absolutely not. People do not go to hell because they're not elect. It sounds at first like people have no choice. But the Bible makes it very clear. God says, whosoever will may come. God is not willing that any should perish. Jesus said, Whoever comes to me, I won't cast them out. So there's absolutely nothing in the Bible that teaches people can't get saved, but it's, it's, it's not their fault. It's God's fault. So we genuinely plead with people, you better get saved or you're going to go to hell. But at the same time, we recognize that, and I'm going to skip that for time's sake, but we recognize that it's a work of God. Now, sometimes when people hear that, they go, well, here's the thing. I want to be saved, but, but I might not be elect. <sighs> oh, no. And that's one of Satan's ploys. When people hear this, they're like, oh, no. I cry out to God, but I'm not elect. Look what Jesus said. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Those are the elect. But then he says, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Does that say, the one who comes to me, unless they're not elect, if you want to come to Christ, come. And if you're worried that you're not elect, why would you be worried that you're, why would you be wanting to come to Christ? You want to know if you're an elect? Come to Christ. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to be saved. You're elect. So don't let Satan convince you that, oh, you, you're not chosen. At the same time, remember this, that when you're inviting people to come to Christ, they have a genuine choice to make. 
And if you refuse to become a Christian or your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your kids, anyone who refuses to become a Christian, who refuses to respond to the gospel, it's their fault. There's no injustice with God. The Bible says men perish because of their sin, not because God didn't pick them. But somehow there's this mystery that says, but if you do get saved, God did it. Now, I don't, I don't understand that completely, and I'm okay with a little tension, with a little mystery. Paul said to the Corinthians, look around in your congregation. There aren't many wise or noble. God chooses the poor of this world. In fact, he says, God chooses the fools. But here's why. Because it is by his doing that you are in Christ Jesus. Somebody once used an analogy. They said, what would it look like if you saw a fence post with a turtle on the top of it? Little legs are moving. You go, I don't know. But he didn't get there by himself. Being a Christian, did God see that you little turtle were going to climb up and get on the pole? So he goes, I choose you. Or somehow in his mysterious grace, it is by his doing that we came to Christ. Jesus became wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Jesus became precious to me because God opened my eyes. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? And when we get to heaven, we won't be going, what are you doing up here? Well, do you have a moment? You know, I have three brothers. They're so stupid. I was the only one. Smarter than the other bears, I chose Christ. Morons. No, if you're saved, it is by God's sovereign grace. He brought you to himself. But if people aren't saved, it's their fault. You're going, that sounds hard to reconcile. It is. Okay, And some people go, oh, no, I just believe it's totally up to people. And I go, you can believe that, but you've got an awful lot of verses that talk about people's inability to come to Christ. One thing I will tell you, besides just talking to men about God, you and I should spend a lot more time talking to God about men and pleading with God to save souls. If you're not praying for people to come to Christ, stop it. Pray for lost people to come to Christ. Now, okay, so you go, you just... You just dumped the heavy one on me, Pastor. Well, I want you to think about that. You don't have to agree with me. So you can go, well, I'm just elect because God knew I was going to get saved. Or, wow, what a work of grace that God had mercy on me. Now, the next one is, is sometimes referred to as the gospel call. It says, everyone he predestined, he called. Now, this particular call is not something that God does with everybody. There's 7 billion people on this earth. God's not given the gospel call to all of them. And one of the reasons we know that's true is look at Romans 8.30. It says, those whom he predestined, he called. And these whom he called, he justified. Okay? So that's a limited group of people. Otherwise, you would have to conclude that everyone on the planet's going to be saved. God calls everybody. Everybody gets justified. So whatever this call is... It's a unique work of God that causes us to respond to the gospel. So Paul, when he sees someone get saved, he goes, I thank God that he chose you. He called you through the gospel. Now, what's really fun is to have people tell their story. I've, I've known of someone that I witnessed to who later on got saved on an airplane, right? I have a friend who got saved reading a track in a laundromat that he pulled out of the trash. 
This morning I met someone who got saved in a trash can. He says, I was playing hide and seek, but while I was sitting there in the trash can, I'd been thinking about the gospel I heard, and he received Christ. I got a, a letter from a, 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 someone who said to me, I was listening to your preaching, and I, was, and I bowed down beside the toilet and got saved. You can be saved in the Taj Mahal or next to the toilet, but the point is, if you became a Christian in some mysterious way, God called you to himself, and you responded. And so, some people call that his effectual call or his irresistible grace. And you're like, I don't believe that. And I go, well, tell me what that means then. Those whom he called, he justified. Now, some of you, you know, it's a mystery. You look back, you go, gosh, I think I was saved as a little kid. C.S. Lewis, everybody has a different story. He was an atheist. He says, God dragged me kicking and screaming. He goes, but here's how it ended. One day, I got in the car on my way to the zoo. And when I got in that car, I was not a Christian. By the time I got there and got out of that car, I was a Christian. What happened? God called him and he responded. So, praise the Lord. However you came to Christ, if you're a Christian, it's because God called you. And you're like, well, who cares about that? I'll tell you why you should care. Second Peter chapter 1 says, you should make your calling and election sure. That's 2 Peter 1.10. So, how is it that God worked in my heart? I mean, I have loved ones. I tell them the gospel. They don't respond. Some of you have a spouse. You tell them the gospel. They don't respond. Some of you have children. You tell them the gospel. They don't respond. Why do people respond? They respond when God calls them. God uses the actual message of the gospel to call people to himself. He never calls someone to himself without the gospel. He doesn't go, we don't need Jesus, we'll just, Jesus said, no one comes to God but through me. So this is one of the reasons why you should be passionate about teaching your children the gospel. Don't hurry and say, just ask Jesus in your heart, Billy. Teach them the gospel. Let God work deeply in their heart. But if you're a Christian, Paul says, we should thank God because God has chosen us from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by spirit, by this spirit and faith and truth. It was for this that he called us through our gospel. If you came to me and you said, yeah, I remember when I came to Christ, I had never heard the gospel. No one told me the gospel. I just came to Christ. I'd say, no, you didn't. You can't come to Christ without hearing the gospel. Because it's the message of Christ, death and resurrection, that God uses to awaken people to bring them to Christ. And you're like, well, what does he do? How is it that he works in someone's heart so that even if they weren't interested before, they suddenly awaken to the gospel? Well, the Bible calls that regeneration. Regeneration. Paul says in Titus chapter 3, it's not according to our deeds that we have done, but he justified us freely by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a, a word that's used in the New Testament as a synonym for being born again. To be generated is to be born. To be regenerated is to be reborn. Okay? Now, <clears throat> what is regeneration? Well, let's... It's a mystery. It's a secret work of God. You cannot see 
regeneration. It's like the wind. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it goes, where it goes. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. God, in a mysterious way, all over the world, as the gospel is being preached, he works in people's hearts to impart new life to them. They're dead, disconnected, and God suddenly connects them to himself. Look at Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and your sins. You were dead. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Now, do you see anything there that says, because he knew that you were going to pick him? No, I was dead. I was deserving of hell. But in his mercy, as I, and I look over my own life, I was, I was the Proverbs fool. But yet God, in his great mercy, even when I was dead, he made me alive. He regenerated me. He imparted life into me. He spoke to my heart and awakened me. It reminds me of when my son was little. He was running across the, the hardwood floor with his socks on and a hamster in his hand. Bad idea. His feet went out from under him. He didn't let go of the hamster. <laughs> this hamster was flat, like a Frisbee. And we're all standing around the hamster. The kids are all there, all three of them. There. <laughs> He's dead. And all of a sudden, it looked like somebody was pumping him up. He starts shrinking. And he, and he comes back to life. It's a miracle, right? In a way, that, I, I like to, to think that that's how unbelievers are. They're flat. They're disconnected from God. But when the Spirit of God, whew, just like when God breathed into Adam the breath of life, when he breathes into the heart of someone, he makes them alive. And now they're connected with God. Now, one of the things that Christians have debated over the years is, nobody debates that you're born again. The question is, when does this happen? You're like, well, why is that important? Well, let's think about it. Many of you tell people or were taught that you're born again after you believe in Christ. You want to go to heaven? Come to Christ, repent and believe, and you'll be born again. And I'm going, okay, so you're inviting a dead person while they're still dead to respond to God, and then after that, he'll make them alive. Others say, well, it happens at the same time. When, when, I, when I believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, that's when I'm born again, at the same time. And I go, well, even that, from a logical standpoint, how? How do I respond to God while I'm still dead? So my particular view is that makes you alive immediately as you respond to the gospel. That's how you respond to the gospel. And you're like, oh, well, then why do I have to be converted? Because that's what happens when you're regenerated. You immediately respond to the gospel, okay? Which, by the way, is really important to think about because we get way too excited about who raised their hand, who has Jesus in their heart, or who came forward. I think it's really important to make a public profession of faith. And I frequently invite people, if you're a Christ follower, to come up here and profess it and get baptized. But that doesn't mean a person's born again, okay? So when Billy comes home from vacation Bible school, I asked Jesus in my heart. That's nice that he said a little prayer. But that doesn't mean that Billy was regenerated, okay? Because regeneration has results. You will see it over time. And if you've never read the book of 1 John, the book of 1 John, that's one of the things that he's burdened to do. He says, 
No one who has been born again will continually and habitually practice a life of sin. He can't because God's seed abides in him. So if you've become born again, you're not going to keep living a godless, disobedient life. Something happened inside of you. You're still going to sin, but there should be a disruption, right? The Bible says those who have been born again love the brethren. There should be some affection where you don't think Christians are a bunch of weird losers who you hate to be around. There's somehow a connection. These are my brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean Christians don't annoy you. It doesn't mean you're like, I must not be saved because Pastor Tom annoys me. I annoy a lot of people, but that doesn't mean you're not born again. But if you hate being around Christians, that's not a good sign. When people are born again, they begin to have an interest in the scripture, right? The Bible says to an unbeliever, it's foolishness. So when a person is regenerated, the result of that is that they make a decision and they're converted, okay? Now, as soon as I talk about conversion, people are like, oh, here he goes again. Them preachers are always trying to convert people. Well, yes and no. Number one, I do want you to be converted. But let me tell you why. Because Jesus said, unless you are converted, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. So if you don't want to go in the kingdom of heaven, you don't need to be converted. But if you do, you need to be converted. But I'm not trying to convert you. I'm just calling you to conversion. I'm inviting you to get converted. I'm begging and praying for you to get converted. So, how does a person get converted? They have to make a genuine decision. Jesus died for sinners, but you're not converted simply because you heard information. So, in essence, the gospel is information with an invitation. So it takes time to learn the information, the facts of the gospel. We're sinners. There's a God who hates sin. Religion can't save us. Only God could provide a sacrifice. Christ came and died for us. Christ was raised from the dead. But that doesn't save people. You become saved when you're converted, when you respond to the gospel, when you make a decision to do what the Bible says, repent and believe, okay? Now, the Bible doesn't make a big deal that you have to know exactly when you did this. Was it on March 7th or April 3rd? What matters is that you know that you have done that or that you say, I'm going to do that now, okay? So let's, let's be really clear. We need to learn how to explain to a person how to be saved. Please stop telling your children, just ask Jesus in your heart. That's not what the Bible says about how to be saved, okay? The Bible says repent and believe the gospel. And so repenting and believing are actually two sides of the same decision, okay? You don't repent on Friday and believe on, on Saturday. Repentance is not cleaning up your act. Yeah, Billy went in rehab and now he repented. There's a lot of people that went through rehab and they're still lost, okay? But the Bible lays out these two words, repent and believe, and sometimes it'll say one, sometimes it'll say the other, sometimes it'll say both. But in the New Testament, as they taught new converts, they talked about the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So what we are inviting people to do is to repent and believe the gospel. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's talk about repentance. Repentance is not works. Repentance is not changing your life around. Repentance is a willingness with God's help to turn away from sin. If a person says, but I love doing this and I will never stop doing that, then they are unrepentant. If a person says, 
I believe that you have to do good works to get to heaven. I will never trust Christ alone. It's both. Then you are unrepentant. An unrepentant heart is a person who is unwilling to turn from sin with God's help. So, so God will accept you just as you are. You could, you could be a murderer, right? You could be the worst person on the planet. If you repent, you're simply saying, Lord, I, I, I want to be changed. I'm willing to follow you. So whether you're religious or irreligious, we must call people to repentance, not just, hey, axe murderer, you want to be a Christian axe murderer? Here's free health insurance, or hell insurance. They need health insurance too. <laughs> so Jesus calls people to wake up and go, do you realize you're on a pathway to hell? You're like, I resent that. I'm a very religious person. Sometimes self-righteous people are the hardest people to call to repentance because they don't think they need it. So, so if a person says, well, I believe I have to go to purgatory and I have to believe I have to do this, this, and this to be saved. The Bible says you need to repent from that. You need to turn from trusting in anything but the Lord Jesus Christ. And then the other word is the word believe. To believe in Christ, and as I wind down here, is a specific decision. And frankly, the word believe is probably not the best word in English. Because in English, believe is, is, is a word that's used of just a mental assent. Do you believe in George Washington? Yes. Do you believe in the tooth fairy? No. The devil believes that there's a God. The devil trembles. That's simply a mental assent. And, and it's grievous. How many people in America, you go, oh, um, Billy's saved. I asked him if he believes in Jesus. What? The devil believes in Jesus. He believes there's the Lord Jesus, and he trembles. To believe is to trust. To believe is to not just know the facts, but it's to come and cast myself upon Jesus and to trust that he and what he did on the cross is all I need to be saved. And that I am in doing that and trusting myself to Christ. I'm latching myself to the cross by faith and saying, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. I believe that you died to save me. So to be converted means to come to a place in where your life, you go, I want Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. You can't have one or the other. You're like, I'm good with the Savior thing. You know, can I get that free hell insurance? No. You confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. It doesn't mean you, you, you're perfect. You have to obey Jesus in every single thing in your whole entire life. It's just, do you get it? You're a sinner. You're lost. You're in need of Christ. The best you know how, you just turn and say, Lord Jesus, I'm willing to follow you. Forgive me. Save me. And I believe that what you did on the cross is enough. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you believe that you have done that, would you please say amen? amen. And if you're, if you're not sure, listen, many Christians doubt. They struggle. They're not sure. That's okay. We want to help you with that. Some of you are sincerely saved and you're going through doubts. But some of you may very well be deceived. You're like, I don't know what I did. I just said a prayer when I was nine years old. I had no idea what I was doing. I wouldn't have a clue whether I was saved. Don't just go on in your life having no clue whether you're saved. The Bible says make your calling and election sure. And one of my burdens is you don't have to just bring people to church so Tom can tell them how to be saved. You can sit down with your children and you can talk to them and tell them what it means to be saved. And you can invite them. 
Do you want to ask Jesus to be your Lord and Savior? Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again for you? Now, this is only the first part. We still need to talk about sanctification and perseverance and so forth. But I trust that this sermon will awaken you to what a great salvation and the things that God has so freely done for us. So, again, if, you, if you're struggling, talk to someone. I'll be here. There's lots of spiritually mature people who can help you to read books, study the word, settle your doubts if you're not sure that you're saved. But then also, as disciples, help us to go out, Lord, and advance the gospel one by one, presenting the claims of Christ and praying that God, I plead with you to join me in prayer that God would save hundreds, even thousands of people, even through our church, and that the ripples of the gospel will go out and impact the community. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all would come to Christ. But he uses prayer, he uses people like you and me to advance the gospel. And then, please, don't be a see-you-once-in-a-while Christian. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Amen? Amen. Father, thank you for the word of God. Oh, Lord, it's, it's, it's alive and powerful. Accomplish your will through the gospel this morning. Call sinners to yourself. Establish and strengthen the weary. Comfort the tenderhearted who are wounded and fearful. Lord, please don't let people hide in shame and fear, but rather settle a wonderful confidence in our hearts that you have done this work for us. We give you all the praise and glory and look forward to how you advance the gospel. Even over the holidays, as many lost people come into our church, may the gates of hell not prevail as you bring men and women, boys and girls, not only to salvation, but to joy, peace, restoration, freedom and forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, have a wonderful week.